This morning we're going to continue our readings in the letter from St Peter. So it's 1 Peter, chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. And it's going to come up. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify us. There's something missing here. Um, let me print out. Submit yourselves for the... Let me go back. The new printout missed. So they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Now, I'm going to... When they reprinted this, we lost a few lines. Right. Now, we're in 16. Live as free... We're right. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, Submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and charitable and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if you receive a beating for doing wrong, sorry, is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and, li and live that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, 
but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewellery and fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master, her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and you do not give way to fear. Now husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult on the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Fred, for rolling with that one. Uh, we turn to this passage this morning, and uh, it's one of the more challenging passages of Scripture. But it has a lot to teach us and tell us, and so let me pray. I prayed before, but let me pray again that God might uh, calm our hearts and minds and give us willingness to hear his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Please work in us now and grant us a heart that is ready to hear and believe. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I've been reading the uh, Sydney Morning Herald. There was an article about the US elections, which of course are... Um, are about to take place and the article actually was reflecting on the place of uh, evangelicals in the US political scene, very different space to uh, the, the evangelical church here in Australia and Sydney but what really struck me was the author who themselves was not an evangelical was extremely turned off by their behaviour and it, it prompted me to ask a question which I think is bubbling away in this passage as well this morning, which is, is it possible for people to, is it possible for you to live out your worldview, your Christian worldview, and for it to be compelling to other people in our time and place? 
Is it possible? And what does it look like when you put what you believe, your convictions, what does it look like uh, in the lived out experience? And this question is answered in the very first verses of our reading this morning, verses 11 and 12, and particularly verse 12. You'll see what um, Peter says here. He says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, this verse 11 and verse 12 are a bit like a hinge section of this part of Peter's letter. We've been looking at this letter written by the Apostle Peter, the first of two letters we find right at the end of the New Testament. We've been talking a lot about hope uh, in the early parts of the book, but now we're getting into the nitty-gritty of how our Christian convictions shape our life. And here's what Peter says, your life should look extraordinary. In fact, live such good lives could be translated beautiful, compelling, a compelling vision of life. Uh, He's picking up probably what Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And if you were to summarise what Jesus is saying and then what Peter is taking in um, verse 12 and applying it, he said, your convictions, our conviction should shape our lifestyle. Our conviction should shape our lifestyle. And this means that people should look at a follower of Christ and see something very unique and very compelling. Of course, the challenge is that's not often the way that people see Christians and it doesn't seem to translate necessarily into real life. We might be tempted to say, well, that's a lovely concept, Peter, but the reality is that doesn't actually work. If we believe something, people will inevitably be put offside by us. Now, I use this example in the leadership planning there, but it's such a brilliant example. I'm going to use it again. This is what the Emperor Julian said in the fourth century. He was not a Christian emperor by any means. He's the emperor of the Roman Empire, so the largest political unit in the world at the time, and he himself was the most powerful person in the world. And here is his reflection. He says, the Christian faith has been specially advanced through loving service rendered to stranger and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who's a beggar, by Jew he's referring to Christians, there's a Jew who's a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well. I think this is such an amazing example, actually, of what Peter is saying in verse 12. Because, I mean, we are attuned to someone doing something good and it being advertised, you know, ending up on a social media feed and someone promoting what a group has done. A church collects food for Toys and Tucker and ends up on their social media feed and the word kind of spreads. But you have to remember what's happening here. This is the 4th century. There's no such thing as mass media at the time. And Julian is the most, Emperor Julian is the most powerful person. And yet, what is happening at, at the most grassroots level of Christian churches has managed to bubble its way all the way up to the emperor himself. Such is the compelling nature of their life. So when Peter says, live such good lives, live such beautiful lives, such compelling lives, that is not just a nice sentiment which the Scriptures presents us, but which will never be reached. In fact, the testimony of the early church and people who weren't part of the early church but experienced their ministry is that is exactly what the Gospel does bring about in God's people. 
you can and should live a beautiful, compelling life. That's the product. That's the product of the gospel. Now, there is a question that's before us, which is, what does it look like to live a good life? What is Peter talking about? If you were to look at um, what comes out of this little reflection, there, there's, there's certain elements of the Christian life that are compelling here, particularly a, a form of social justice and care for the weak. But what is Peter talking about when he thinks about good living? What is he referring to? Uh, I mean, I'm sure he'd agree with that, that all of that comes under the heading of it, but I think he's talking about something more specific. And he gives us three examples, and you'll see if you're reading along in your own version of the Bible, or if um, uh, you pull it out on your phone, you'll see that the, the reading is actually broken up into a number of paragraphs, and each paragraph grabs three different groups. The first is, he says in verse 13, I think it's 13 through to 18, 16, he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. In other words, good living happens in the broad space of civil life. Broad space of civil life. Then in the second section, he says, he addresses slaves. He says, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. In other words, good living happens not just when all the, all the circumstances are favourable. We think, oh, as a church or as God's people, as individuals living out our life, we have the capacity to live good, compelling lives only when things are in favour of us. But the example of the slaves tells us actually that Peter is calling us to live good lives even when things are against us. He says, not just those who are good and considerate, but also those who are harsh. And then finally, in the third section in chapter 3, he says, wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands. And he goes on to say, he implies, basically, these are non-believing husbands with believing wives. And perhaps wife has spoken to her husband about what she believes. He's well and truly aware of the gospel and the thing that's changed her life, but he himself doesn't believe it. And Peter says, not without words, but when words don't work, silence extraordinarily. Your actions can, can, live, can produce a good life, a life that's compellingly beautiful. And what's really interesting about all of those is there's such a spectrum there. Peter's point is actually to live a good life, a beautiful life, a compelling life, is a life that can take place in every, every part of life. In the civil life, in our daily activities, we have the capacity to live in a beautiful, compelling, good way. When life is hard, we still have the capacity to live beautifully. And even when our words no longer are effective, we still have the capacity to live in a way that honours God. That honours God. It's not, of course, putting aside the necessity for words, but it's saying that even when they don't work, when you sense that your words have done all the work they can and still there is much to be done, your life, your good life can be compelling and beautiful. Peter is saying to live good lives happens in all circumstances. Now, there is, there's a caveat here. Just because he says that good living can happen in all circumstances, he's not affirming all of those circumstances. And this is very important to realise in this passage. First of all, in Peter's culture, wives and slaves were not seen on the same level as men. Slaves were just basically like household property. And wives 
They were slightly higher than slaves, but they were certainly a second-class citizen. But notice what Peter's doing. He's not affirming that reality because actually he speaks to each of them individually as individual actors. He doesn't assume that a slave will just do what their master asks them to do. He speaks to them. He compels them with the gospel because they, like their masters, should be addressed as independent people who deserve respect, whose thoughts and rationale need to be worked over by the gospel. And similarly for wives as well. They're not just people who follow what their husband does, but they are independent actors who are addressed at length in the scriptures about how the gospel should shape their lives as well. Of course, slavery always makes us slightly uncomfortable, more on a philosophical level, I suspect, than a lived-out level here in Western culture. But whenever we see the Bible referring to slaves, we wonder whether the Bible secretly is affirming slavery. But it's worth just reflecting on what's happening here. Peter isn't, he's not listing a manifesto for overturning slavery. That's not his point. In a sense, the point of this passage is not to change the socio-political structure. He's, he wants to see that happen at a deeper level and we'll get to that in a minute. But he's certainly not affirming it. He's just saying that in your moment of hardship, you still have the opportunity to glorify God. And we need to read what Peter says in the context of the, the whole of Scripture. Uh, at our, again, at our leadership planning day, we talked about the book of Philemon. And in that book, we have uh, the Apostle Paul writing to Philemon, who's a master, and saying to him, receive Onesimus, who was a slave as a freedman. Why? Because the gospel has made you brothers in Christ. Paul is saying the gospel overturns this extraordinary part of culture called slavery. And actually, when, when the abolitionists come about in the 1800s, people like Wilberforce take hold of Philemon as the justification for overturning slavery because they see in Paul's writing and in Scripture an equality which makes slavery immoral. And it's in that greater context that we read what Peter is saying. So he's not affirming slavery, although he's saying, slaves, even in the midst of your hardship, God can use you. God can use you. And of course, wives. Sometimes I think, I mean, we've thankfully become more aware of domestic violence and um, spousal abuse in the last five years. One of the challenging aspects of that has been of that people have argued that the, the Christian doctrine of um, wives submitting to husbands leads to domestic violence. But I think whenever you read the Bible, that's, that's a failure to actually read what's in the Scriptures. Verse 7 is a very helpful verse for us. Look at what Peter says. He's addressed wives, but then he turns his mind to husbands. And he says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them as the weaker partner. What he's saying is, if your wife has willingly submitted to you, she makes herself vulnerable to you. Be considerate of that. Be aware of that. Do not operate outside of that reality. And then he goes on to say, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. You see, for Peter, fundamentally, the husband, the wife doesn't inherit the gospel because her husband did something or affirmed something. The wife is a co-heir with Christ. They are equal before the Lord. This is an extraordinary thing that Peter is saying. I mean, we take this for granted. We say, well, of course, that's how we sh husbands and wives should consider each other. 
But what we have to actually realize is that our natural inclination to see it that way is actually a product of the gospel which has slowly transformed culture. We take it for granted, but that is actually a product of how the Bible has spoken into and upended and turned over a culture which would never have spoken about wives like this as heirs with you of the gracious promise. The Bible, you see, changes the way that relationships operate on fundamental, deep-down levels. And, and it, I mean, I just want this to be really clear. The Bible does not allow domestic violence. It does not sanction it in any way, shape, or form. If you're, a, if you're a wife who endures domestic violence, I want you to feel free. I want you to feel welcome to come and talk to me or to Jill Chilton on our staff team. The church has got to be a safe place for you. You are safe, and the Bible in no way asks you to endure that without acting on it. But I also want to say to husbands, and this is very important, see, if, if you are abusive, your wife, you cannot read verse 7 in any way as an affirmation of your behaviour. You are going strictly against the Scriptures. There is no way, if you're abusive of your spouse, that you can say, be, I am being considerate of my wife, or I am treating her as a co-heir of the gracious gift of the Lord. And so, at that very point, you are in deep contravention of the gospel and the word of the Lord to you. And I'd ask you to repent of that immediately. Immediately. This, this portion of, um, of the Bible is very challenging, but it's actually saying something that's a message which runs throughout Scripture, which is that there is power in weakness. There is power in weakness. You might think, oh, that's trite. But think about the story. That if you go back to the Old Testament, one of the things that repeats in the Old Testament law to Israel is this fourfold group of people, widows, orphans, the poor, and the foreigners. And at the centre of Old Testament law is a constant reminder to God's people, Israel, that this group of four people, marginalised, without any kind of familial care, isolated, are meant to be the focus of their care and concern. Because God is intimately connected and concerned with the weak. And the message of this section actually to wives, to slaves, and to us generally who come under the authority of government, is that you have an extraordinary capacity to live a beautiful, compelling life despite the weakness of your situation, despite the limitations, despite the hardship, whatever that situation is. You have an extraordinary ability to live a beautiful life in the midst of... In fact, weakness sometimes is what deepens the beauty of the experience. I've got a great example of this. In 1960, the New Orleans Education Department desegregated their schools. Up until that time, uh, white children went to one school and black children went to another. And a very famous story, six kids then enrolled in these desegregated schools. Two of them, once, once things kind of blew up, decided, no, they're going to go to do school from home. Three of them went to school together at another school, but one girl went by herself to school. Her name was Ruby Bridges. Uh, maybe you've seen this picture of her. Um, it's a famous picture. She walked through the crowds, escorted by the federal marshals every morning. 
And as she walked through, the crowds were gathered. All the students had left, all the white students had left in protest. Eventually, one other student joined who was the, was the child of a Methodist minister. And all the teachers had left, except for one teacher who was a Christian woman who decided that she wanted to continue to teach Ruby. But instead, they would stand at the, at the gate and they would, they would yell at her and protest. They threatened to poison her. They had little baby, black babies in coffins trying to intimidate her. And every day she'd walk through. Now, this psychiatrist, Robert Coles, writes this book because he decided that this poor girl must be traumatised psychologically by this experience. And so he, he was drawn to her. In fact, he remembers watching her once walk in and she stopped and she turned to the crowd and her lips were moving. Of course, it was on a camera so they couldn't hear what she was saying. And so he asked her later, what did you say to the crowd? She said, I didn't say anything to them. He said, my mama always told me to pray for your enemies and I realised that morning as I left that I hadn't prayed for them. There's immense beauty in weakness. There's immense beauty in weakness. And the gospel, the gospel is telling you that. Now, here's what's interesting. Pete, some of the people who read Peter's might say, oh, well, Peter, that's fine for you to tell wives to submit to husbands. You're male, you're married, you're an apostle. <laughs> Jesus said, I'll build a church on you. Of course, I mean, the truth is Peter ultimately gives up his life for the gospel. He gives up his life for the gospel. But, but you notice what he says? He doesn't say, look at my life and how much I've given up. He says, the fundamental truth that out of weakness comes great beauty is found in who else but the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, verse 21. Uh, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. Peter says, look at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you don't believe that it's true that out of weakness can come such beauty? Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have come as anyone. He could have come as a CFO of a, a big bank in 2020. He comes as a Palestinian carpenter in the first century. He lives the life of a homeless man with a band of homeless people. And he dies on a cross. And out of that moment comes the salvation of the world. Do you think that Peter is saying something that is, that, that is simply trite? This is the gospel, that out of weakness comes great beauty. Out of weakness comes great beauty. And it's this principle, you see, that's bubbling away through what Peter is saying to us, to slaves who submit to call to submit to masters, to wives who are encouraged to submit to husbands, to husbands who are asked to be considerate of their wives. This extraordinary in your moment of weakness is where God can work great beauty to his glory. Now, do you believe that? You know, whenever you preach this passage or the um, the similar passage you find in Ephesians or in Colossians. Uh, it's, it's often a mixed moment. I think this passage is one of those moments in Scripture where right now what the Bible says just runs so counter to our natural inclinations. The word submit is such a dirty word. Even that idea of having a gentle and quiet spirit seems, seems so difficult to justify in our culture what the Bible is challenging each of us to, to adopt and I think the reason it's challenging 
is because at the heart of it, this is about rights and power. This is about rights and power. You just think about what Peter's actually saying here. If you were to summarise the principle that is applying here, he is saying to you, make your rights less important than the rights of another. Say, make your rights less important than the rights of society in general. That's why you submit to the authorities. Slaves, make your rights less important than the rights of the master over you. That's why you submit to your master. Wives, make your rights less important than the rights of your husband. Husbands, make your rights less important than the wife. That's why you're considerate of you. But you can then, you can then actually expand that principle more broadly. And this is why it's difficult, actually, because the, the Bible's not just speaking to three groups of people. It's speaking to each of us. And that principle, when you start to expand it, is far more challenging than wives submit to your husbands because it's saying, you as an individual member of this church, submit your rights to the group of God's people. You know, when you wake up in the morning and think, I'm just not up for being with God's people today, or, or it's a Wednesday night and you're exhausted, and you think, I just, today's not the day for me. Tonight's not the night for me. Submit your rights to the rights of the group. Or it says to a parent, you're exhausted, you just want me time, submit your rights to the rights and needs of your children and their need for nurture. You know, you do have a right to promotion and professional development, but submit those rights to the needs of your children to be raised in the knowledge and love of the Lord. You start to take that principle and apply it to your life. You don't need to easily fall into one of those three categories to feel the challenge of what Peter is saying here. And the problem here is that for each of us in that moment, the challenge is we think, no, I want my rights. We want my rights because my rights means I get some power over someone. And the reason I really want power is because I actually just want control. I want to take control of part of my life. Of course, it's not real control. I mean, you exercise control over one person. There's a hundred other people who are exercising control over you. It's not real control. But if I could just have control over this part of my life, if I could just have my rights in this part of my life. But what's interesting is, think about how Peter is justifying this behavior. If you look through the passage, each time he calls someone to do something in this passage, there's a very clear tone to it. It says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to everyone. Then he says, For it is God's will that by doing good. Verse 16, Live as God's slaves. Verse 18, Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to masters. Verse 19, Because they are conscious of God. Verse 20, If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And then verse 5 of chapter 3, for this is the way the holy women of the past put their hope in the God. You see, do you see the repeating theme in each of those? You can go back and have a look at it this week as you read it. And what you see is that Peter's foundation for this activity of submitting your rights to other people is a deep consciousness of God and who he is. It's a deep assurance that God is there and that he's in charge and that he cares for you. And Peter says when you have that, you're able to submit your rights to the rights of another because you're acutely aware that ultimately it's all for the Lord's sake and the Lord is ultimately in control. There is nothing outside of his hand. Now, here's the problem. 
Not only do we struggle to submit our rights horizontally between people, we struggle to submit our rights vertically between us and God. That's why we've all wandered away like sheep, as he quotes Isaiah. And because, because we cannot even submit ourselves to the Lord, we don't have the assurance that Peter's talking about. We don't have the assurance that God is in control and that he loves us and that he's going to work for us because that's broken. But do you see what Peter says? Very importantly, verses 23 and 24. He says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. He's talking about Jesus, talking about that example that we talked about in verse 21. He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. But then he shifts in the example. He says this, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, Peter, Peter is trying to show us that Jesus Christ is not just an example, he is our great substitution. And it's actually a deep understanding of this aspect of the gospel that will fix our hearts. Now, you can go and read Mark's gospel. Peter wrote Mark's gospel with Mark. So it's his account of Jesus' life. Uh, If you look at, uh, we're doing Christianity Explored starting on Tuesday night, which is looking at Mark's gospel. If you've never read Mark's gospel before, that is a great course to get involved in. You can go and see the website and there's a link to it. What's really interesting about Mark's gospel and Peter's reflections on those last hours before the crucifixion is he has seen the trial of Jesus. And repeatedly, he points out that Jesus doesn't say anything in the trial. And the only times Jesus does say something, he seems to push himself further towards the cross. I mean, he never lies. He's always straightforward. But the only times he chooses to answer things are things which seem to condemn him further and further down the path of the cross. And Peter says, that is not an accident. That is not an accident. See, Jesus willingly goes to the cross. Willingly goes to the cross so that the thing between us and God can be healed. So that you can have a deep assurance that things are actually okay with you and God. That he loves you. That nothing is going to hold him back from you. Nothing is going to impede between you and he. And that's the gospel. You can't live beautiful lives because you're a beautiful person. The gospel says you're not. But you live a beautiful life when you start to see that Jesus Christ gave up all his beauty for you. You see, because the more, to the extent that you will start to see that Jesus Christ bore my sins on the cross in his body for me. So that I can be healed, so I can be right with God. The more that I say that, I find a foundation for, for being assured that even if I hand over my rights to another person, make my rights less important, things will be okay. Not just okay, they'll be good, they'll be beautiful. And you can only really submit your rights to someone else when you have that foundation, when you are sure that between you and the Lord, things are good because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why power, we only exercise power rightly when we have Christ at the center. 
Not just because he's our example, but because he's our substitute. Let me pray for us. Kind Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who gave up all his power, who willingly endured great injustice for us so that he might bring us to you. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would convict our hearts and encourage our hearts with this truth that in Christ we are right with you, that you are for us and you love us and you have all things under control. And knowing that we are in your hands and that your great power works for our good in the gospel, pray that you would equip us to be people who readily hand over our rights for the sake of others and so that our lives would be beautiful and compelling and might result in praise and glory on that last day. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.